You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. A reading of the collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit. Lecture 2, given on October 25, 1909, is entitled Supersensible Processes in the Human Senses. Yesterday we limited ourselves to a mere listing of the senses, although the way in which it was done was derived from human nature itself. We did not jumble all the senses together, as is typical in sense physiology, because of its inability to discern where each sense fits into the picture. We enumerated the senses, and then we arranged them in an order that accords with the facts of human makeup. Today we will proceed to make a closer study of the human sense essence, for this is one of the most important areas from which to approach human nature. We began with the sense to which we gave the name of life-feeling, life-sense or vital-sense. We must now ask, what is the basis, in the true spirit of the word, of this sense of life? We will have to delve deeply into the unconscious depths of the human organism to make ourselves a picture of this sense's origin, though of course it will be only a sketch. The first thing encountered will be the remarkable working together of the physical and etheric bodies. This becomes evident when we try to find out what the life sense is based on. The lowest member of the human makeup, the physical body, and the ether body enter into a very specific relationship to each other. That is the result of another factor that appears and sets into the etheric body and suffuses, or we might say, saturates it. Another element flows through and pervades it. Human beings of our time are not aware of this other element, but spiritual science can tell us what works in the etheric body and, pictorially speaking, saturates it as water does a sponge. Spiritual scientific examination discovers it to be the same as that which in the distant future human beings will develop as spirit body or Atman. Footnote Atman refers to the spirit human being. When the human eye, quote, when the human eye being gains mastery over the physical body, and when the most powerfully opposing forces of the physical body are also overcome, the human being bears within itself the spirit human, spiritual body, or Atman. In transforming one's physical body into Atman, or spiritual body, one thus becomes sevenfold. Outwardly the physical body appears as a physical body, but inwardly it is completely controlled and permeated by the I, capital. At this stage the physical body is both physical body and Atman. Unquote. From the Spiritual Hierarchies in the Physical World, Reality and Illusion, page 68, Buddhi is the sixth aspect of the sevenfold human being, or life-spirit, the transformed etheric body. Manas is also referred to as spirit-self, the fifth aspect of the sevenfold human being, 
contained in the transformed astral human body. See also Theosophy, pages fifty-five, excuse me, pages fifty to fifty-six, and a footnote. We do not yet possess it, the, uh, the spirit body. We do not yet possess it through our own development. It still has to be lent to us by the surrounding spiritual world. It is lent to us without any conscious participation on our part. Later, in a still far distant future, we will develop it through our own effort. It is spirit body, or Atman, then, that pervades and suffuses the etheric body. And what does it do in the etheric body? We are not yet in a position to harbor our own spirit body, or Atman. At the present time, it is still a superhuman element within us. This superhuman element, this Atman, expresses itself in that it contracts the etheric body, indeed even cramps it together. If we want to borrow a picture from the outer sense world, we might say that it could be compared to the frosty effect of cold. What will one day be the highest human member, for which we are still too immature, cramps us together? The result of the cramping is that the astral body is as though squeezed out, and to the degree that the etheric body is compressed, the physical body too experiences tension. Frosty tensions arise in it. It is as though one were to squeeze out a sponge. The astral body seeks breathing room and is then pressed out. Processes in the astral body are feeling experiences, experiences of pleasure and aversion, joy and pain, and so on. It is this process of being pressed out that makes itself evident in us as the life sense, in feelings of freedom, energy or faintness, for example. Now let us take a further step upward. We talked of the self-movement sense as the second sense. Again, something is at work in the etheric body that we do not consciously possess. The etheric body is filled, saturated like a sponge filled with water, and the saturating element is the life spirit or buddhi that we will eventually develop of ourselves. The spiritual world has lent it to us for the time being. Buddhi, or the life spirit, works differently from the spirit body. Its effect is to establish a state of balance in the astral body, reminiscent of still water. Balance in the etheric body and then in the physical body brings about balance in the astral body. When this balance is disturbed by some external agency, it seeks to restore itself. If in making some motion imbalance is created, balance is restored. Let us say that we stretch a hand out. An astral current flows back in the opposite direction. That is the case in every movement of our organism. Any change of physical position calls forth in the organism an opposing astral streaming. This happens when we blink our eyes or move our legs. The sense of our own motion is experienced in this inwardly felt restoring of balance in the astral body. Next comes, next comes a third element that can pervade the etheric body. This element, spirit self or manas, is also one that we are currently only faintly conscious of, although our developmental task is to become aware of it. 
It therefore works differently on the etheric body than life spirit does. Its effect is to expand the etheric body, bringing about a situation that is the direct opposite of what was characterized as the frost produced by the life sense. The effect of manas on the etheric body might be likened to an influx or warmth into a space. Something resembling a current of warmth is set streaming into the etheric body by manas, causing an elastic expansion in it. This brings about a thinning process in the astral body, but without pressing it out, so that it is able to remain in the expanding etheric body. Whereas the sensation experienced with a life sense is based on the pressing out of the astral body, what we have called the static sense or sense of balance originates in the expanding of the etheric body, which gives the astral body inwardly more space. The astral body is then not so compressed, it grows thinner. This thinning of the astral body and ether, ether bodies enables physical matter too somehow to stretch and expand itself. Whereas Atman's effect is to cramp the physical body and that of buddhi to maintain it in a state of balance, that of manas is to relieve pressure on it. And since the etheric body expands, the physical body is able to push out tiny particles of its being at certain places. That is the origin of the three small semicircular ear canals standing in perpendicular relationship to one another, corresponding to the three directions of space. That might be called they might be called distensions of the physical substance of the body. Similar organ formations arise in a great variety of ways as new creations, marvelous structures that owe their existence to a relieving of pressure from outside rather than to being pushed out from within. Owing to the fact that the astral body is able to expand further, it can enter into relationship with the outer world with which it must establish balance. If that were not to happen, people would stand at an angle or might even fall over. There is no such necessity in the case of the first two senses, but the third sense has the task of establishing balance. When we strive to enter somewhere, we must do it in the way possible for us. For instance, in space we must orient ourselves to the three directions of space. For that reason, the three half-circle canals grow perpendicular to one another in the three directions of space. If these organs in the ear are injured, our static sense no longer functions and we become dizzy or lose consciousness and so forth. Animals, however, descended prematurely into material existence so that their physical substance is more hardened. Stony structures called otoliths arise within them. They are situated so that they help animals to determine and sense balance. We have now discussed three senses in a sequence progressing, so to speak, from inside outward. The last sense is just on the borderline between what human beings experience inwardly and what we must experience in order to become a part of the outer world. Modern science, which clings to physical facts, has recently had it pushed under its nose to the point of finally having to recognize these three areas of our sense organization. Here, too, we must make a sharp distinction 
between the actual findings of research and the opinions held by group-soul cadres of learned men on the basis of inadequate thinking. They have demonstrated in just this area of science how inevitably the lack of a thread to guide them through the labyrinth leads to error. That lack is a major stumbling block in this case. It has led to comparing organs in the human ear with certain organs in the plant world, where a kind of balance is brought about in the leaning of a plant through the shifting of the position of such particles in it. Because, as a rule, logic leaves modern thinkers in the lurch, just at the moment when a correct view is needed, they sometimes conclude that plants also have a sense of balance. Logic of this sort is based on a standpoint I have repeatedly cited and characterized. There is a certain plant that rolls up its leaves to trap invading insects. The superficial claim is made that this plant must be credited with possessing a corresponding sense. But I am familiar with another object that is able to perform the same function even more competently and even goes so far as to attract small animals and snap them up namely the mousetrap. With the same right, then, what is said of the human senses, and then extrapolated to the plant world, could be equally applied to mousetraps. It would be just as ridiculous to apply the same reasoning to a pair of scales and talk of the scales' sense of balance. Such absurdities are the product of inadequate thinking, which is that is unable to expand and sufficiently penetrate the real nature of a matter. These are three senses with which science has been concerning itself, but it will learn to understand them only when it finds and makes use of the thread of spiritual science. Only then will it achieve a true understanding of the structure of the human organism, the way it actually is precisely under the effects of the interactions I have described. That requires the development of a spiritual scientific ability to observe and grasp the whole human being from within. Now we come to the sense of smell. It can be asked why, that's, why the sense that science calls the sense of touch, the one most dealt with, has been left out here. Since there is to be such a limited number of lectures on the senses, some aspects will have to be covered rather sketchily, and much that is said may then sound somewhat paradoxical. The sense of touch has been left out because the way it is usually described is as a fantasy structure and invention of physiology. It cannot be said to exist as such. A whole series of senses can equally well be designated touch senses. There is no such thing as an actual sense of touch. What goes on when we touch something? Let us say that a person takes hold of an object. We can ascribe the entire process to the sense of balance. Pressure exerted on some part of a body upsets its balance, and what takes place does so only within the sense of balance. Exactly the same thing occurs when we put pressure on a table, stroke a velvet surface, or pull a string. Touching calls forth changes in our own state of balance when we press, stroke, pull, and so on. The sense of touch is always to be sought where the sense of balance is active. Science holds the most disastrous views about the touch sense. People speak of pressing without going into the nature of pressing itself. It is something they do not think about. To spiritual scientific observation, however, 
It raises the question of what kind of disturbance it causes in the sense of balance, and what equalizing adjustment it necessitates in the astral body. We can judge how mistaken it is to view the sense of pressure as an aspect of the sense of touch, if we ask why we are not crushed by the huge atmospheric pressure bearing down upon us. If the matter were as ordinarily viewed, there would be tremendous pressure on our bodies. Curious youngsters may ask about this in their physics classes. They are answered with the statement that the pressure from outside and a countering pressure from inside our bodies are equal and thus balance each other that human beings are filled with air as their surroundings are, with the result that the two opposing pressures are the same. <clears throat> this maintains balance, and people cannot be crushed. If the child is awake, he or she might object and say, I have often dived deep into water and been completely surrounded by water, yet was not crushed, in spite of the fact that my body was not completely filled with water, otherwise I would have drowned. This is an example of the absurdity to which matters lead when they are explained purely externally and materialistically. The fact in this case is that we are involved in an eminently spiritual process when exposed to pressure. We are led right into our astral bodies whenever disturbances of balance require equalizing. When pressure is exerted on any part of us, our balance shifts and we push the astral body into that compressed part, thus restoring balance. <clears throat> in fact, we let it extend out slightly beyond the part under pressure. There is, so to speak, always a small astral swelling where the body part is pressed. This purely astral equalizing effect is so powerful that it is able to overcome from within the full pressure of the air outside. The spirit is literally palpable here. It just isn't noticed. Now, what happens with the sense of smell? The organism is involved here with something of which we are more closely aware than in the case of the other senses, the consciousness soul itself. What spiritual science terms the consciousness soul is brought into operation in the act of smelling. It calls forth at a certain place in the organism a process that is not merely one of thinning or expanding. Here, the astral body extends its influence outward beyond the limits of the organism. Gaseous substance penetrates into the mucous membranes of the nose as we smell, and astral substances simultaneously balance this process by pressing outward in the same measure. When we are engaged in smelling something, this, these astral substances always desert the organism and plunge into the object. They experience, not only in themselves, but in the object, too, what we call fragrance, aroma, stench, or whatever. A quote-unquote feeler arises in the astral body through the consciousness soul. The sense of taste functions as it does because the intellectual soul is working on the organism. This soul uses the organ of taste to pour out astral currents and sends them to meet the substances upon the tongue. The process that takes place in smelling is a very special one, for what is streaming out of the astral body in the act of smelling, nothing other than will-like nature. What we feel inwardly as the will impulse wells up to meet the material flowing in as we smell.
Smelling is a process of resisting, a will to repel the influx of matter. Spiritual research can state that such matter is not merely air-like substance, that is only maya, illusion, but rather will flowing in from outside us. Forces of will engage one another when we smell things. The result, as Schopenhauer guessed, is that wills coming from within and from without fight and obstruct each other mutually. Schopenhauer built his philosophy of the will on this notion. Footnote Arthur Schopenhauer, 1788-1860, the German philosopher and author of The Word as Will and Idea, German Die Welt als Wille und Vorstellung. End of footnote. But that is a false metaphysics. His statements about those forces of the will hold true only in the case of smell. Everything else is simply interpreted into it. Just as what pours out through the sense of smell is will-like, what streams out toward foods in tasting as the nature of feeling, and what streams in is likewise of a feeling nature. Feeling interacts with feeling in our tasting. Anything else is simply maya, only an external sign. A feeling reaction functions here as a sense, in that taste is perceived as pleasant or unpleasant, repugnant, and so on. It is not feeling as such that is involved here, just the corresponding interactions of feelings. The next sense we come to is the sense of sight. What works here on the etheric body and streams into it is the sentient soul. What occurs is of a thought-like nature, a thought-like principle prevails. The sentient soul already harbors in itself though as a subconscious thought, what is conscious in the consciousness soul. In the sentient soul it is a form of thinking that streams outward through the eyes as genuine thought substance. It has a far greater elasticity than the two other substances that stream out through the senses of smell and taste, and for that reason reaches out much further. An astral element really does stream out from the human being to the things. It is not true that ether waves of light enter the eyes and cause them to project an image outward. For that to happen, someone would have to be sitting in the eyes performing the function of projecting images. What a gruesomely superstitious idea this figure doing the projecting is. In a case like this, science, which is so proud of its naturalism, resorts grotesquely to that much-despised imagination to help itself. An astral element streams out as thought-substance toward a thing and continues until, at some distant point, it encounters resistance in an opposing astral counter-current. The conflict that ensues between these two astral elements creates the color that we sense on things. It comes into being at the boundary of the thing where the astrality streaming out of us meets the astrality streaming forth from the object. Color is produced at the border between the interior and the exterior astral elements. It is very strange when one considers, for example, that in the sentient soul there is in fact a subconscious thinking that appears first in the intellectual soul and that we first become aware of it in the consciousness soul. If we look at something with both eyes, what seem to be two impressions are in fact caused by a kind of thinking, 
that at first is not conscious. If this is to become conscious, then these two thought moments must cooperate. They must make their way from the sentient soul up into the consciousness soul. To illustrate, here are both hands, each of which can sense things on its own. They must intersect, however, if we are to become conscious of the feeling that the one hand senses the other, just as we become truly aware of external objects only when we touch them. If the impressions developed by thinking activity in the sentient soul are to be lifted into consciousness, they must intersect. In the act of seeing, this is a result of the optic nerves in the brain intersecting. This crossing is based on the sentient soul's subconscious thinking being raised into the consciousness soul through such a crossing, so that one soul perceives the work of the other. Thus the physical <coughs> arises out of the spiritual, <coughs> and the human being can now be understood down to the finest anatomical details through anthroposophy. The next sense is the sense of warmth. Here again is something that, through its effects on human beings, mediates the sense of warmth. This is the sentient body. It activates its astral substance and allows it to stream outward to enable us to experience warmth. This occurs when we are able to send our astral substance outward without being hindered in the act. We don't feel warmed in the bathtub if the water surrounding us is at body temperature. If both are equal, we can't absorb warmth from the water. Only when we stream out warmth, or when it can stream into us from outside, do we sense either warmth or coldness. When our surroundings lack warmth, our own warmth flows out into them. When we lack warmth, we let warmth stream into us. Here again it is obvious that an outstreaming and an instreaming are taking place. When inner and outer equilibrium exists, then temperature is not experienced. The experience of temperature is always connected with the activity of the human sentient body. If we touch some object where the temperature is rising, the outstreaming of the sentient body becomes ever stronger. What wants to come in from outside forces itself more and more upon us, and the sentient body has to meet it with a correspondingly powerful countercurrent. There is a certain limit here, however. When it is no longer possible for the sentient body to let a force flow out to match the heat coming from outside, we cannot endure it and get burned. We would also have to feel a burning sensation on touching something very cold if our sentient body is not able to let its own substance stream out. If we take hold of a cold object that hinders us from letting substance stream out of the sentient body because the object gives nothing up to us, then the extreme cold manifests as a burning and causes blisters. Both are due to the same effect. Let us turn now to what is called the sense of hearing. It is the sense with which the etheric body is involved. In its present state, the etheric body, unlike the sentient body, is unable to give up any of its substance without our suffering permanent loss. Since Atlantean times, the etheric body has been constituted in such a way that it cannot give up anything further which would deprive the human being of life forces. Footnote. 
The time of Atlantis refers to a period of prehistory and to a specific epoch of cosmic and human evolution on Earth. See Rudolf Steiner's book Cosmic Memory. End of footnote. Hearing must therefore be, be based on an entirely different process, for in this area we have nothing more to give up. The highest sense that we can develop out of ourselves is the sense of warmth. If something that we ourselves do not have were not to enter into us here, there could be no such thing as a sense of hearing. Therefore the human organism is permeated by beings who saturate it like a sponge. These are the beings we call angeloi, or angels. Footnote. The spiritual hierarchies were first outlined by Dionysus the Areopagite, an author who lived about the 6th century A.D. In a lecture during 1921, Steiner said of the hierarchies, quote, When we ascend into the spiritual, we come to beings arranged above humankind in the same way that human beings have their place above the animal, plant, and mineral realms. As we ascend, we therefore have the angeloi, the archangeloi, and the archai. The beings we designate angeloi or angels are those who have the strongest relationship to the individual or single human being. Those of the second hierarchy above humankind are the archangels, one of whose functions is to work as folk spirits, embracing groups of individuals who belong together as a people. The archai act as guiding beings throughout certain epochs of time, beyond the differentiations among various peoples. From Cosmosophy, Volume 1, pages 88-89, Steiner also discusses the higher hierarchies at length in the book The Spiritual Hierarchies in the Physical World, Reality and Illusion. End of footnote. They went through the human stage in the past. They send their astral substance into us as a foreign astral substance, which we then make our own allowing it to work in us and then to stream out again. It streams out through our ears to meet what sound brings toward us. We move, as it were, on the wings of these beings into that inner realm that we learn to know as the soul of things. Here we are concerned with beings who stand above human beings and fill them, but whose substance is of the same, is of the same nature as our own astral substance. There is a still higher sense, the sense of speech or words, of tone. Here again we are involved with an area in which we human beings have nothing of our own to contribute. For that reason beings have to intervene, whose substance is similar to that of the human etheric body. Of course they also possess the corresponding astrality, but that is pressed out into the world around us. They have to enter us and give us of their etheric bodies enabling us to pour this force out again into our surroundings. These beings are the archangeloi, or archangels. Their role is entirely different from that played by the angels. It is due to their activity in us that we are able not only to hear the tones of speech, but also to understand their meaning. We are not limited to the perception of a musical tone, say a G or C sharp, but on hearing a speech tone we can go further, to an experience of its inner nature, we perceive an ah according to the sense of tone. The beings referred to are the same as those we call folk spirits, spirits of the various peoples. In the sense of hearing, angels manifest their work outwardly in air vibrations, which affect the, ear, the air in our ears, 
whereas the archangels counter what occurs in the air outside with a different kind of action. They cause patterns of movement in a fluid substance, with the result that it circulates in a certain direction. That we perceive the meaning of ah, for example, is also a consequence of the circulation of the finer fluids. This activity comes to outward expression in the shaping of a people's physiognomy, in the particular expression built into the organisms of individuals belonging to a certain race or culture. That is what in particular these beings bring about. Therefore we can say that the fluids in a people flow differently and the whole organism works differently according to how the archangel associated with the people endows them with this or that as a sense of tone. When, for instance, one people says Aham, Sanskrit for I, capital, regardless of what theories they may have concerning the human eye, these theories play no role. The two consecutive Ah sounds create a basic organization whose result is that individuals within that culture have an experience of the eye that corresponds to the two ah sounds sequence. When a race or culture combines I with a ch sound in the German ich, it brings about a wholly different effect. Such a people must have an entirely different conception of the I. There is a particular nuance, a special coloring in the I, and it is what is implanted by the folk spirit into the organisms of the people concerned in connection with the conception of the I. It makes a great difference, too, whether something is described by a word containing the sequence A and O, or an I, and then an E. The whole feeling of a people changes accordingly. Amor, Latin for love, conveys a different nuance of feeling than does the German Liebe. Here we see a typical example of the folk spirit at work. It is not a matter of indifference that Adam is used by the Israelites to denote the first human form, whereas in ancient Persia it means I. Quite different qualities of feeling are evoked thereby in the different peoples. We touch here on the mysteries of language, or rather of its first elements. We are speaking here of the activity of beings of archangelic rank. They pervade human beings with the speech sense or tone sense and set out, excuse me, and set our fluid substance vibrating. One of the greatest experiences a person who is ascending to higher worlds can have is to begin feeling what a difference there is in the formative force of the various speech tones. The tone force shows its effect, effects best in the fluid element, while that of sound is shown in the air. We can also sense the significance of someone's feeling prompted to call some person or being Eva, sounded long Ava. If the same speaker wants to express something else that reflects the opposite relationship, that of the spirit to the physical, Ava can be sounded backward and thus be turned into Ave or Hail, a fitting sequence of syllables with which to greet the Madonna. This evokes an opposite sensation in the human organism from that experienced in Ava. Another such transposition, adding a J in the word Yahweh as used for God in the Old Testament, 
a person on the path of higher knowledge, can experience every aspect of the relationship between Yahweh and Ava by delving into the nature of the speech tones involved. Language did not spring from arbitrary roots. It is spiritual in origin, and to experience it in its own spiritual nature we have been given the sense of speech or tone, which is as true a sense as all the others. It should be added that deeper reasons exist why the senses must follow the sequence in which we have treated them. We will go on, the next time we meet to discuss a higher sense, the sense of concept, and still higher ones, in order to be able to explain the microcosm through spiritual scientific means. The end of Lecture 2